Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Kerrang's Inside Track, where the world's biggest artists tell the stories behind the most influential moments in rock history. I kind of wish I, I kind of wish that I, I could say it did take 13 years to make because there really oh, yeah. is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, because then it would sound so good. <laughs> like every time you listen to it, it would be like, "Wow, this took 13 we, years." We to actually make. rushed it a bit. <laughs> so Those were the voices of Danny Carey and Justin Chancellor, members of one of rock's most scrutinized bands, Tool. Tool finally released the follow-up to their 2006 album Ten Thousand Days on August 30th, 2019. To describe this album as long-awaited is something of an understatement. The 13-year gap between releases had led to a feverish sense of anticipation amongst fans. From the outside, the news-hungry media, Kerrang! included, watched, waited, and reported on every hint of the band getting together, whether to potentially write and record, or quite possibly, in some cases, just to enjoy a cup of coffee. Every update was followed by speculation that Tool would surprise us all by releasing the album the following week. From the inside, however, the reality was quite different. Frontman Maynard James Keenan, guitarist Adam Jones, drummer Danny Carey, and bassist Justin Chancellor were happy to enjoy their independence, spending time with their young families, working on other creative projects, or, specifically in Maynard's case, running a vineyard in Arizona. Though the rumors surrounding Tool's new album date back as far as 2008, the band didn't officially buckle down and head into the studio until March 2019. From there, it took just a few months of intense hard work to pull everything together. The result was Fear Inoculum, an uncompromising album that runs over 86 minutes in length and, despite its sheer musical complexity, reached number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart. In the process, displacing the world's favorite pop star, Taylor Swift. In order to delve deeper into the story behind the band's third consecutive number one album, we spoke to Danny and Justin about one of the most intricate and challenging musical works of recent times, the complexity of which may well take us another 13 years to fully digest. Most significantly, though, we wanted to know what took them so long. Here's Danny, voice as broad as his six foot five inch frame, followed by Justin, the band's resident Londoner. We toured for what five, five or six years after Ten Thousand Days. So then, after doing that, we're not a band that writes while we're touring. So then we didn't want to see each other for a little while. So we took a couple Quite years a break. While. Yeah. <laughs> had had kids. Went through some lawsuits, whatever, and then we got rid of the kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're off in the orphanage now. But uh, <laughs> then we started working. So I mean, it's really what well, we worked probably a good solid five years on it, though, like we did on all the other Tool records. And uh, can I just ask you a question? <laughs> How long is it supposed to take? 
I kind of wish I, I kind of wish that I, I could say it did take 13 years to make because I, I, there really oh, yeah. is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, because then it would sound so good. <laughs> like every time you listen to it, it would be like, "Wow, this took 13 we, years." We to actually make. rushed it a bit. <laughs> As fans of the band's intricate music know only too well, writing a Tool album is one complicated exercise. Danny, Justin, and Adam write the music first, arriving at what they consider to be the final versions of songs prior to sending them to their enigmatic frontman, Maynard, who shapes the melodies and lyrics. At face value, Tool's process is similar to countless other bands. In reality, however, the distillation period is what sets them apart. Well, the thing was, the way we write, it's all jams and bits and pieces that get pieced together, and sometimes things are written with the intentions of being a song, and then all of a sudden the main riff of this song, six months later, turns into the verse or the chorus of another song and we we don't have anybody in our band that's a composer so it's like we're all in there doing it together and day by day I, and i don't suggest this method for any other band no, out there. Me neither, otherwise me you may neither. spend 12 years yeah don't do it don't even go there <laughs> yeah. but that's the way that's the way we do it and that's the way we've always done it and it and it takes this long for a reason but but the end result is we all completely believe in every bar not just every verse, every chorus, not even every eight bar. Every bar is scrutinized. And that's the result of what you will hear on this record. These songs also, the, the way that we also work with, with Maynard or whatever, we don't give it to Maynard until we do that. Like, this is me and Adam Justin we're talking about now. And then we send that to Maynard because Maynard, what it takes for him to do what he do, he, he has to commit to this concept and this whole thing. And it's like, there's nothing bums him out more than anything. Like we if we send him this thing and then we change it, it just, it's like throwing the <laughs> ultimate wrench into his work. Cause once we give it to him, he, he commits and that it's, that's it. He does not want to change it. And I, dude, and I don't blame him for that because of the commitment that he has to have to do his bet. So yeah. that's, to use his words, that's, that's, that's the way right. we figured it out to do. Because, we, man, we went through the whole bit trying to do that on the previous records, like send him something, and then all of a sudden we go, oh, wait, well, we decided to change this chorus, dude, and he would, well, you'd just it's lose a, his fucking it's mind. It's in a different time signature. Oh, man. yeah, yeah, you would change your time. It's not like, five anymore. So you're pretty, Maynard would be like, so you're pretty much saying I just did all this work for nothing. <laughs> How disheartening. I, I understand his point of view, but these things that you're asking about this being done first or whatever, like uh, the... the Descending, I think it was it. Then it was. I, 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 Danny's <laughs> right. I sent. I, I was really excited about a few of the tracks, you know, and I'd, I'd get carried away with myself, and I'd send it to Maynard. I go, mate, I'm going to send you a version of what we did today, <laughs> and he write back like, wow, that's awesome. Is is it is it is that it? Is it done? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, he's ready to go. <laughs> I had to write back. Actually, well, stand by. You know, I'm not sure if it's finished yet. And sure enough, you know, the next day the whole thing changed, and I had to tell him. He's like, don't send that to me anymore. Like, just let me know when you're done with it. <laughs> and kind of like that became the protocol. You know, we like finished our stuff he's like are you really sure this is exactly what you guys want to do <laughs> we go oh, yeah, like, yeah. No, it's like the yeah. boy who cried wolf <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and look mate 
I can't even imagine how he comes up with what he does because what a nightmare, you know? What a nightmare to walk into. And he just, and he absolutely just like blew my mind every time on every song on this album. He just did something, you know, amazing and unexpected and, and, and transcendental, you know? And just elevated the whole, you know, what we were doing we thought was like already quite fantastic. Made it incredible. With the writing complete, Tool were ready to record and opted to work with the producer of 10,000 Days, Joe Barisi, perhaps best known for his work with artists like Queens of the Stone Age, Caius, The Melvins, Avenged Sevenfold, Paul Bearer, and Clutch. Not only had the band worked with Barisi before, they were adamant that their album had to be recorded on analog tape in order to capture the warmth of their sound. It's a process that Joe actually specializes in. But despite knowing the band's working practices, he found that recording Fear Inoculum came with its own challenges. Here's Joe. When Tool first came to me to start recording the, the follow-up to 10,000 Days, I mean, I kept getting the occasional call, like, we're going to start tomorrow, no, next week or whatever, or in a month or this year or whatever. And every time it never happened. So honestly, I didn't think it was going to happen. But I, I, I thought it was going to happen last year for sure. I just didn't think it was going to happen that quick. So um, I honestly wasn't prepared at all. I was in the middle of mixing Alice in Chains, and they're like, when are you done? And I was like, March. And I'm like, okay, find a studio. We're going in in March. So there really wasn't any preparation at all for me, which kind of sucked. Um, on 10,000 Days, I got to sit in a rehearsal room for you know a month, and I would, I would listen to the songs. I'd write arrangements down. If I couldn't count something in some crazy time signature, I could ask those guys what time it was in, or they would explain it to me, and I could jot down some tempos and stuff where stuff felt good. So when we got to the studio, I can kind of start them and say, hey, let's. this sounded really great at this tempo. I'll just give you a bar of click, and let's roll. So this, this record, though, they've invited me down many times. I just was so busy at that point, I couldn't go down. And... Um, going into the record and having the demos and such a huge body of material. It was, uh, it was crazy, actually. We use, what, three different studios, I guess. Uh, being the drummer, I usually have to throw my tracks down first. I did mine at A&M, what, well, it's called Henson now. It's a beautiful studio right in the heart of Hollywood over on La Brea. It's where the Rolling Stones did Gimme Shelter. Gimme Shelter, yeah. The police did, I think, Regatta de Blanc. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, I mean, there's just there's been all these incredible recordings go down in that room. So, and it sounds great. It's good drum room. Stingy did 10 Summer Stales there. Yeah. <laughs> so after I heard Mr. Denny Caliuda's tracks in that room, that was one of my favorite drum sounds. So I go, oh, I'll record my drums there. And yeah. Joe Barisi engineered and like uh, and mix did did all the work the whole way. He was the he was the man. He came through. After I laid down my tracks after a couple of weeks or whatever it was, then we moved to a place called United that I think used to be Ocean Way. Was that is that the Ocean? I think it's next to it. I don't know. It's, like like a, it's anyway. Uh, yeah, it's cool. But Justin uh, and Adam did their their tracks United. at a different studio, and um, Maynard I think did most of his at at his house in his bedroom. Yeah. 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 And then. There's a few overdubs and bits and pieces we did here at our studio in Hollywood. So it was kind of split between those four 
fortified places, whatever. It's pretty much a walk in the park, you know. In addition to working in those studios in L.A., Joe took a trip out to Maynard's Vineyard in Jerome, Arizona, also the home of Caduceus Cellars and Merkin Vineyards, where Maynard produces wine. There, Joe was joined by Maynard's musical partner in the band Pucifer, Matt Mitchell, who had helped with a ton of pre-production work. Together, as they enjoyed the fruits of Maynard's parallel career, they recorded vocals in Maynard's spare bedroom. Doing vocals was, you know, basically six days because he was pretty well prepared. Six days of wine drinking and olive picking and cutting vocals. It was awesome, actually. It was a good break. Maynard's vocals are always, like, uh, the treat, like the the, the icing on the cake to me. And it kind of made sense. Like, I didn't really hear a ton of vocals on the first round of demos I got. And then when I heard what he was doing, it all made sense to me. Following that intense period of recording, the band eventually whittled down their material to 10 songs, over 80 minutes of music. And soon, a theme around the number seven began to materialize. Most of the songs were in 11-4 or 7-4 time. If you include Salival, the band's live video album from 2000, Fear Inoculum would be their seventh release. One of the songs that made it to the record is a track called 21, three times seven, which was ultimately renamed Tempest, spelled with a seven instead of a T, to commemorate this odd numerical theme that had, deliberately or otherwise, begun to define a deeply experimental record. One of the standout tracks from the record is essentially just a five-minute Danny Carey drum solo with a looped modular synth backing track entitled Chocolate Chip Trip. Lots of fans have speculated that it's about weed edibles in the form of chocolate chip cookies, but in fact, it's named after something far more pedestrian than that. Here's Joe again. The studio we were at also used to bake us these chocolate chip cookies all the time, so it was an extra little special treat. I put on a few pounds as well, and um, Danny called his drum solo on the album Chocolate Chip Trip, and based on the, you know, the fact that all we did was eat chocolate chip cookies, the solo itself was pretty awesome. He always does like a synthesizer thing and he gets behind a drum kit and plays to it. And he had his um, his original drum kit from when he was a teenager set up as well. It was like this old stainless steel Ludwig kit with 10 toms and just massive and no heads on the bottom. Just, you know, something you would see a guy in ELP play, you know, back in the day. And Dan would actually start working on the synthesizer and get that going. And then he'd sit, get behind his normal drum kit and play to the synth. And then he'd get up and run across the room and play on the second kit. So it was actually quite funny to see. And he did that. Like the first take he did, he didn't run to the other kit, but the second, third, and fourth he did. And so it was, they were all like one take solos, which is pretty awesome. We ended up using the first one because it was just nostalgic. It was the very first take. And, but the least thought up one ended up making the record. These songs are, they're, no matter what, like we were saying, man, over 10-minute songs, those are big bites to chew. <laughs> so we, we just want to, we want to put, we always we try to mix it up, like put some little tidbits. It's an opportunity for each one of us to do something in between that's like, Oh, you know, like, okay, catch your breath now before we have to go into another 13-minute extravaganza or whatever, you know. So, you know, it, it was kind of neat. Some of those old prog records, they did, you know, it's like, okay, here's the intermission or whatever, you know. But the one I did, I mean, it's just one of my drumming heroes, man, is this guy named Billy Cobham. And he did this record called Spectrum. He played with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. He played with Miles Davis, but it, 
on it what it, his first badass solo record that massive attack sample all these other there was a solo that he did on there that was just like to an orb 2600 where he just ripped over the top of it and the tempo was locked in but it was sort of free for him and so but I was like oh man I want to do that but there's a lot of heavy shit on our, this record is like really a lot of sevens and stuff so I wanted to put the time signature into seven and do the same sort of a thing so the entire chocolate chip trip is in sevens like going beyond into the world of seven and then uh and then taking it as far as i can and then but it's a, my it's my ode to billy cobham that's all i can say is like because that guy changed my life I mean, he was a big influence on me so i i did that drum thing and it was one take no edits no nothing and um and it turned out great. I, I fired up this thing on my synthesizer, nailed the sequence down when these guys were having lunch or something, and I just did oh, it by myself. <laughs> and, the, and like in between takes when I was doing my drum tracks. And that was it. And it was great. I do my drums I think sound great on it because you know, when you when you go into the mixing process, it's intense because Everybody has to have their place. Like you have to sacrifice your low end or high end for different instruments, and then. But on that one, it's it's just me. So Barisi could just make my drums sound like God Almighty. <laughs> so it's it turned out great, and I'm I'm really proud of it. But uh, but it is my ode to Billy Cobham because I love that guy. He, he took me to a better place, and there that's it. And Despite the band's desire to continue pushing their sound forward. The recording process itself proved relatively incident-free. Although Joe Barisi does remember one particular moment that could have proved to be disastrous. When we were tracking, you know, we always like to set up the room so it's visual. Dan's got like uh, some geometry thing behind him and there's always a PA and candles and um, it's very vibey. And um, I remember the drum tech Bruce Jacoby was in front of the console and I saw this look of panic in his face and I was like what what is going on and uh, all of a sudden he just bolts out of the control room through this back door and he gets behind Danny's drum kit where I guess Dan was playing with such power that one of the candles fell over on his floor tom and started burning the floor tom so the the head of the floor tom went on fire and there's sprinklers in the ceiling, so we were trying to get the fire out before, you know, the sprinklers went off, and then the whole recording would be ruined. So that that was one of the um, most insane moments, actually. Dan almost burned down the studio. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As a band, Tool have always shrouded themselves in mystery. On stage, Maynard often performs in the shadows, in costume, or behind his fellow band members. Offstage, none of the band tend to offer up much information about their personal lives, nor are they prone to discussing the meaning behind their songs. This, combined with the band's musically complex, deeply psychedelic style of heavy prog, forces the listener to dig deep, and accounts for the devotion displayed by Tool's fanatical audience. This deliberate sense of distance and myth-making is something that Danny remembers admiring in the bands he loved as a kid. I understand that, that curiosity. That's what drove me. It, it drove me mad, what, like not being able to know more about Pink Floyd when I was a little kid. But that's that's the great thing, you know. The, there was this mystery behind it, and like well, you couldn't find out enough. You know, you would. It made your mind work. It made you. It made you seek after it, or made you try to interpret it, or you know, made you want to envision or imagine what they were doing and I, I think the more of that mystery the better because like all music everybody's going to interpret it on their own level or their own filter anyway so when it the healthiest thing is not to just give it away or like take the mystery or take the piss out of it and just say oh this is this you know, then what's left you, you want you want people to dig in and discover something about themselves like standing in front of the Mona Lisa or something, everybody has a different emotion probably when they see a great painting. Mm. We want somebody to have, everybody gets to do it through their own life experiences and get something out of it for themselves. Such mystery permeates Maynard's lyricism, his oblique wordplay forcing Tool's army of rabid fans to endlessly debate song meanings. Maynard's bandmates appear to be equally uncertain of their singer's intentions, although Justin is willing to take a guess as to what the lyrics to Fear Inoculum relate to. You know, I don't know what Maynard's talking about, right? Like, he's very cagey. But I think the general gist of it is that as you grow up and learn stuff and get older, hopefully you're not afraid anymore of the stuff that held you back in the first place, you know? In a way, it's implying the idea that you can immunise yourself against the fears that have basically, you know, ruined everything. <laughs> you know, so, you know, fear, fear, and 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 just uh, sadness and and like lack of fucking aspiration and hope. You know, dissatisfaction with the modern world is something that has not only informed the band's new album, but the wider sense of unease with which they viewed the music industry as a whole. As a result. And despite releasing music since 1991, Tool were one of the last major acts to allow their music to be available for download or via streaming services. Their reasoning was partly financial, streaming revenues being substantially less than those generated by the sale of physical product, and partly creative, the band wanting their music to be consumed as full albums rather than just as isolated tracks. Some argued that this stance meant that an entire generation of music fans who'd grown up during the streaming age had essentially missed out on hearing Tool. It's something that the band addressed in the run-up to Fear Inoculum's release as they finally made their entire discography available digitally. 
Here's Joe's take on it first. My take on the way people consume music now is that there is some music that needs to be immediate. So I'm, I'm totally fine with the whole idea of singles. It's nice to be able to, to switch from a song to another song. But there are some bands that, you know, you're going you're gonna to want to hear the work in its entirety, which is a lot of the reason they didn't put 10,000 Days out as a streaming release last time. Because what do you do? You can't really just buy a single off that record and just go, okay, I got it. You know, I mean, you're buying an eight-minute song, first of all, but you really do need to hear, to hear the the body of it and how one song flows into another. So, you know, complete this album for nine ninety nine or something is kind of stupid. You know, I, I, I don't see that happening. I can see it happening with a commercial band, but I think they appreciate, like, they all grew up on music that was intricate and had some substance and grew up on like pop music or whatever and um i think they listen to music like that they're very attentive on on the body of work and i think that's sort of you know i don't know if it's actually intentional how you lay the record out until later but or how you write the record but um their music is 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 so intense and so it's a it's like a journey you know what I mean? And so it's not like, especially when songs are so long like that, it really is like parts. You can't really cut one and can't cut the 16-minute song into four parts and call it, you know, a four-minute single because it doesn't work like that. There's sections where it's just brutally aggressive and there's sections where it's just incredibly pretty. So I, I think there's room for both in the world, but I'm, for this band, I can't really see like selling singles. It's just, it doesn't really work for me. Yeah, with the format thing, I mean, obviously we had to, Take into consideration because we we were kind of this uh, dinosaur leftover thing that was That's we signed up, we signed our, a five record deal that was based around CDs back when we signed it and now it got to this point you know to to accomplish the finality of the releasing this record we had to negotiate the whole digital domain and. We, we already missed out on a huge facet of that as far as uh, the download thing. Now people don't even want to download your shit anymore. They just they just want to stream it. So, I mean, it's kind of a culture shock for us going through all this, but it, it's, a, you know, a necessary thing that has to be done because if you want to try to reach people with your art, so here we are. I, I don't mind the streaming thing, you know. It's, it's in, a, in a way, the only thing that's a bit disappointing to me is sometimes it, it you know, it's, caters more to like that shorter attention span where I don't know if it leaves much room for somebody that wants to like us that wants to release an album or, or like a, a bigger package of music that might more like reading a book rather than listening to a commercial yeah, on stream TV this or something. album you know stream, you know, stream yeah, to, to, to go ahead and yeah I'm hoping that there'll be a, a big percentage of people that stream the album don't, don't just pick a song that somebody says oh this is the cool song or something you know because it's not it it was written from our end and composed on our end to to be an album to be an experience that you can dig into for yeah 80 minutes on the cd and 90 minutes yeah. on the digital download so but i you know I, I don't know how many people are left out there in the world that were willing to jump in and do that when i was a kid we all i did i bought records and i listened to the record from, from beginning, beginning to, to end, end yeah. and that was what that's what i grew up on so that's what i'm still doing that's 
that's the format of, the format of releasing a record that I grew up on and I wanted to achieve that, you know, like Pink Floyd and Yas and, you know, all those proggy bands, you know, so it wasn't about singles. It was about albums. So that's what yeah. we do. I mean, you know, nowadays everything is driven by singles. So people get used to hearing the three and a half minute song or whatever, and that's it. And then your, your shuffle comes on and you're, you're going through thousands of songs, but all the tool stuff to me is really a sit down between speakers or your headphones and just appreciate how they intertwine. And I think it's going to take a few listens for most people to, to figure it out and to appreciate where it's going. But there's so much more meaning behind the first listen. I think, uh, so the, I think the rewarding thing is, is like, I don't know. It's like hearing people go, you know, this is amazing, or, or I've heard stuff on my fourth listen that I'd never heard before. Or this record, especially, is a journey. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to get your face pummeled, and then you're gonna just mellow out and relax for a while and breathe. And once you get your breath back, you're gonna get hit again. And you, you can't really separate that into four, four things. Tool have never been known as a band looking to score a hit, and yet, when it came time to release a first single from Fear Inoculum. The album's title track, a hefty piece of music clocking in at 10 minutes and 21 seconds, ironically became the longest piece of music to enter the Billboard Hot 100 since the chart began back in 1958. More significantly, it set the tone for the album that followed two weeks later and went on to sell 270,000 copies in the US alone in its first week. Quite a feat for an album that retailed for $80, thanks to lavish packaging that included a four inch HD screen and a two-watt speaker by which the film of the album could effectively be watched. For Tool fans, this packaging was testament to the band's endless creative quest. For the band themselves, the reaction of the fans was vindication enough. So we just got back from a five-week tour in Europe doing the festivals, and I could not believe the fact that there were, you know, teenaged men and women standing next to their parents at our shows, you know, like at the festivals, at our own shows. And it was completely mind-blowing that somehow, uh, you know, like this has been passed down to, to, to a younger generation that apparently doesn't even buy CDs, you know. So it was, to me, that was like invigorating, you know, like we just, we, we haven't even released the album yet. <laughs> we were playing and there's like these kids like watching going, yeah! with their mum and dad, you know, which was wonderful, I think. And, you know, if there's any reason to keep on going, there it is. This episode of Kerrang's Inside Track was hosted and executive produced by me, Ethan Fixell. It was written and produced by Kat Jones, with interviews conducted by Kat Jones and James Hickey. Additional production was provided by Phil Alexander, with talent coordination by Sam Cor. It was edited and mixed by Kieran Kay at Full English Post in Brooklyn, New York. All music was written and composed by Ben Hutcherson, and our logo was designed by Matt Deitzel. Special thanks to Monica Side Evanson, Mark James, Frank McDonough, and Julie Weir. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Inside Track wherever you listen to your podcasts, and visit Kerrang.com for more information on Tool.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.